This episode of Shift is brought to you by American Axle in Manufacturing. Our advanced electric drive technology portfolio proves that no one is more ready to bring the future faster than we are. To learn more about our market-ready, scalable driveline technologies, visit aam.com future. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm your host, Pete Bigelow. Hi, this is Leslie Allen. Welcome to the show. Joining us today is Regina Clulo, the CEO and co-founder of mobility data platform startup Populous. We'll be talking about micromobility, shared transportation, and, and even the very exciting topic, Leslie, uh, of curbs. Um, but first, I wanted to ask you about what, what I thought was kind of some interesting electric vehicle news this week. We had some some comments from uh, a big time CEO that were decidedly cool on, on the whole EV uh, proliferation that we're seeing right now. Yeah, so this is um, comments from the CEO of Stellantis, Carlos Tavares. He was um, speaking with some European newspapers and basically he is saying that the EU's uh, strategy of phasing out combustion engines in favor of EVs is a political choice uh, that carries environmental and social risk. Now, this is really interesting considering that Stellantis is stepping up its EV efforts, including an announcement around the time of CES about uh, adding more EVs to the Chrysler lineup. But this is what... Um, Carlos Tavares told the, uh, the newspapers, and I'm going to just quote here, he says, what is clear is that electrification is a technology chosen by politicians, not by industry. And then he went on to say that there were cheaper and faster ways of reducing carbon emissions. So um, not everybody's uh, 100% on board with this electrification push, Pete. No, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, he's right in a way. I think China and the EU kind of started the dominoes falling. And once both those went, uh, you know, the North American market essentially had to follow. Um, and, and it kind of goes along what Gil Pratt, with what Gil Pratt told us during our, our event, Leslie, during, uh, you know, the, the Automotive News Mobility Forum that we had during CES. And it was, it was essentially that... You know, do you want to set your goals as a government to add electric vehicles to the fleet, or do you want to set your goals to reduce carbon emissions? And and while those two things, the Venn diagrams might overlap quite a bit, they're not necessarily one and the same. So uh, I, I do think there's a lot of food for thought there, particularly as it relates to uh, you know hybrid, plug-in hybrid options, and then and then maybe even a little bit more further afield, some some hydrogen fuel cell options as well, particularly for for commercial vehicles, but yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting from Carlos. Another thing that I thought was interesting, Pete, that uh, Carlos Tavares said was that given the current European energy mix, an electric car needs to drive about 44,000 miles to compensate for the carbon footprint of manufacturing the battery and also to catch up with uh, light hybrid vehicles, which costs about half as much as a fully EV. So, uh, Really great food for thought there. It is. It underscores the idea that there's no magic solution to, uh, you know, reducing carbon 
yeah, this is this is probably a net benefit, as that forty-four thousand figure would would point out. Um, speaking of other things that don't have a uh, you know a magic formula or solution in the transportation realm, Leslie, uh, obviously late last week we saw Local Motors shutter its doors, which was a day or two after Optimus Ride, uh, you know, was part of an aqua hire from from Magna. So, uh, you know, this this AV shuttle space is really suddenly consolidating and drying up it is and you're seeing some announcements coming through and then you have some projects that are are falling by the wayside and i'm wondering is there some sort of a trend i mean they say it, if it happens three times it's a trend so right now just two that we know of but my goodness um those announcements were pretty uh, surprising and I might add that we've had guests on our podcast from both of those companies, from Local Motors, as well as from Optimus Ride. And, um, you know, to see this change happening is um, somewhat surprising. It is. Um, and I, I think it has a lot to do with the pandemic probably really hurting orders for a while. Um, and as I wrote in today's Automotive News, and last week, uh, the chip shortage played a role for, for local motors as well, and as, as well as some kind of interesting bureaucratic uh, logistics hurdles that, that had to be overcome that added to the cost of a vehicle. So, um, you know, as we see the general headwinds in the AV space, I think these, uh, maybe the, the so-called self-driving shuttle companies are, are on the front lines of it, really feeling it. Yeah, certainly. But one thing, uh, the brain power is still there. And I know at least in the case of Optimus Ride, the engineers, most of the engineers, I believe, were offered positions with Magna. And Magna is taking over some of the intellectual property uh, from Optimus Ride. I don't know the situation with local motors and its people, but you know, at least it wasn't a complete wasted effort. That's very true. It'll be interesting to see uh, where the assets from local motors uh, get acquired, uh, assuming that they do in the not too distant future. Well, that's enough talk about autonomous shuttles and vehicles. I think uh, let's switch now to the micromobility realm, which is the specialty of Regina Clulo, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Populous again, uh, who has a really interesting perspective on, on shared transportation and and the uh, the data behind it. So without further ado, uh, here's our conversation with Regina Clulo. Regina, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you uh, here today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me and Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you. Uh, where are you joining us from today? I am in San Francisco. Um, our office is based here and I am still in the city. Excellent. Okay. Uh, well, let's set the stage for our conversation here today, Regina. For, for those who don't know, uh, what does your company, Populous, do? Uh, how are you connecting uh, mobility operators in cities and, and working with data? Yeah, um, so Populous is a mobility data platform that works with cities um, to better manage the public right-of-way. Um, we really got our start in, in 2017, um, and at the same time, there were a lot of private services that were growing. Um, and what we deliver is really a digital platform that allows cities to more easily coordinate with um, fleets that are operating in the public right-of-way. So, for example, scooter companies, we ingest data from the world's largest operators so that cities can more easily create parking corrals and other uh, key infrastructure changes 
um, that help those operators move more efficiently. Um, and we're now delivering data in over 100 cities um, around the world, um, from San Diego to Tel Aviv. Um, and it's been you know, a fun journey um, as the transportation ecosystem has continued to change. What kind of vehicles are we talking about? You mentioned micromobility. Is, is this primarily scooters that you're uh, collecting data on, or does it, does it kind of span the transportation realm all the way up to ride-hailing vehicles, private vehicles, et cetera? That's a great question. Um, as we've become, begun to expand into more and more cities, um, and as cities have really adapted how they think about digital infrastructure to manage their physical resources, um, we have expanded to other curb management solutions. Uh, so a big thrust over this past year has been working with cities who are being more dynamic in how they manage commercial loading spaces, um, whether that be for passenger delivery or goods delivery. Um, and so we do have digital solutions that allow cities to um, manage their curb regulations um, in a digital platform, share those with operators, and then also begin to um, receive data from operators to uh, do commercial loading and decide what policies should change. So, so Regina, you mentioned that you're working with well, well over 100 cities. So I'm wondering, when you do talk to these cities, what sort of data do they already have or what sort of knowledge do they already have about their streets and their curbs prior to working with populace? I think that you know what we find is the map that the vast majority of cities have um, a, some data about their own physical infrastructure but you would actually be surprised at how many cities don't have information about their own physical assets. So one of the key challenges that we are currently working with many cities to address um, is the issue of parking regulations or curb regulations, no parking signs, loading signs. Um, much of that information actually doesn't exist in an easy-to-use digital form, if at, if at all. Um, and so that's one of the key um, data sources that we help cities gather through our platform so that they can then be more dynamic and have the ability to share that with key operators of the public right-of-way most of whom are now connected in digital. Um, so most vehicles that are operating, particularly in, in fleets, um, uh, are connected and can consume that information and, and use it. Um, the other source of data that we help cities more easily leverage um, is data from mobility operators. So one of the interesting dynamics is over the last five years um, with mobility operators, specifically in the micromobility space, most cities now require that those operators share data with the city um, in exchange for having a permit to operate um, in that municipality um, or jurisdiction. Uh, we ingest that data on behalf of cities um, because it's very messy, it's very large, uh, and what we do is turn that information uh, into insights that they can use for data-driven decisions. Well, it certainly seems like you're collecting quite a bit of data. I mean, how, is there any way to quantify that? Like how many different types of metrics are you collecting on these cities? Um, well, one stat is we have um, ingested data for over 100 million trips um, in those cities. Uh, and uh, we're seeing that increasingly more and more cities are working to add additional modes of transportation into how they um, effectively view and make decisions around what new mobility services um, uh, are operating and then how they can allocate space better for them. So from scooters to car sharing, uh, to ride hailing, to delivery services, cities want to be able to more effectively 
um, reconfigure their space because most physical infrastructure obviously doesn't change that quickly. You mentioned curb space in particular earlier. I'm very curious about how curb space is evolving because it seemed like for a long time the curb was just kind of this, this underappreciated asset. And now, now everybody's realizing the value of that, particularly as we have uh, more curbside deliveries, more sidewalk robots operating, and, and of course, um, you know, humans and pedestrians, uh, which I guess are the same thing, that, that want to use uh, sidewalks as well. So, so how is that curb and sidewalk area evolving? I feel like the, the, the curb space has been a topic of conversation in our industry for probably around three years. But I, I from my perspective, um, the pandemic actually accelerated um, cities' abilities to make decisions around reconfiguring that space. So I'm sure, as you saw uh, over the last uh, two years, many cities started creating slow streets or shared streets where entire street segments were dedicated to bikes and pedestrians. Um, we also saw tons of cities create outdoor dining or streeteries in those curve spaces. And so I think that brought up a lot of new ideas uh, and ability for cities to make change around how that curve space is utilized. Um, what we've seen is over the last year, many cities are starting to put into practice curb management strategies where they're saying, okay, we've seen <laughs> how our space is being utilized. Uh, we know that, for example, we may be allocating too much to on-street parking, um, but we have this huge volume of deliveries that are happening, and we don't actually have allocated space for delivery services to effectively operate. And that's why you see things like double parking, because there aren't enough loading spaces for the amount of goods that we currently have delivered in cities. So there's a lot of, of movement in that space. Um, you know, cities from coast to coast are, are now updating their curb policies. It's incredible to think of how the pandemic has changed uh, transportation and in particular, uh, you know, street and curb use, as, as you just kind of outlined. Curious if you see those, those changes as temporary or, or permanent. Um, we are seeing a lot of cities that are making those changes uh, permanent. Um, they may have started in pilot form uh, during the pandemic, and then now they're converting them into permanent programs. So that includes... Uh, policies such as the streeteries or uh, on-street dining um, uh, programs. Many cities have started to make those permanent, um, all the way to uh, commercial loading zones um, or priority food pickup in front of restaurants that they want to also make permanent. Okay. Uh, curious, can you just give us a, an idea of some of the cities that you're working with? I heard you mentioned San Diego and Tel Aviv. Uh, is it just big cities, uh, suburbs, uh, et cetera? Uh, who all are, does Populous work with these days? Um, our platform serves really the gamut um, of cities, large and small. Um, we serve cities from Omaha and Lexington to Oakland, San Diego, uh, and Baltimore. Um, so we, we do have a platform that's really robust and fits many different city sizes needs. Um, we actually really enjoy working with some of our smaller cities because they're able to be more innovative more quickly. Um, I, as I'm sure you know, uh, changes in the public right-of-way can get political sometimes. And so some of those mid-tier cities are actually able to innovate very fast and they're fun to work with. So um, you mentioned Tel Aviv, of course, and I'm wondering, are there other cities or international cities that you're working with? And is there a difference in the approach to mobility between US cities in general? and those in other parts of the world? 
Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there are clearly some differences that we've seen. Um, we do work in Europe um, with a number of cities to help ingest mobility data um, and make it usable in the same way that we do in the U.S. Um, what we found is at a high level in the U.S., mobility data sharing evolved more quickly. So many cities put in place um, program requirements and structure around micromobility programs um, more quickly than European cities, but now those European cities are, are catching up. Um, but on the flip side, um, in the space of mobility as a service or MOS, um, I think a lot of European cities are further ahead in thinking about how do we integrate public transit and private shared mobility fleets. So I know that there's something called mobility data specification here in the U.S., which started in Los Angeles. So can you tell us what that is? And apparently there's been some controversy over that uh, regarding privacy. So can you fill us in on that issue? Yeah, sure. Um, so Populous has been um, ingesting mobility data specification or MDS formatted data since the day it first kind of hit the ground. <laughs> um, and it's evolved over the past couple of years. But essentially what MDS is, is it's a data standard that prescribes how mobility operators should structure their data in order to share it um, with different consumers. In this particular case, MDS is primarily used by cities to help understand you know, where those vehicles are parking, where uh, trips are occurring. Um, there have been some controversies, but you know, for the most part, what we see is that the vast majority of cities are interested in using that data to improve um, transportation planning and operational management of shared mobility vehicles. Um, and one of the key you know, reasons that Populous exists is that we serve as a neutral third party that is able to ingest that data, aggregate that data, so that what a city receives and is using is useful for transportation planning, but it really removes a lot of the concerns around privacy because you can't then re-identify individual trips, uh, which is where many of the key concerns lie. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, Regina, is, is Populous's role to, in particular, to anonymize that data? Is that, uh, is that one of your key uh, roles, or does, does the mobility operator do that first? I know some of it's location-based, so it, it does get interesting in terms of, uh, you know, can you identify a person even via an, you know, anonymous log of their particular trip? When it comes to data privacy and anonymization, um, Populous and MDS data doesn't actually include any um, obvious identifiers of individuals, so there are no names or credit cards or addresses. Um, however, there is GPS trace data embedded in MDS data. And so one of the purposes um, of Populous is to, first and foremost, we make the data usable um, for transportation insights and planning um, and, and operational management. Um, but we do also aggregate the data so that um, it can't be used to re-identify a specific individual from GPS trace data. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. For over 100 years, internal combustion engines have had the road all to themselves. But change is coming. And it's coming at the speed of no sound. At AAM, we're taking our smarts and scale and turning it into the speed of now. Taking our love of axles and connecting them to our passion for amps. 
to drive the world of electrification faster. We're doing things that are so fast, so smart, so innovative, that we're disrupting the disruption. We're not a startup, we're a smart up. Saving cost, saving weight, and sparing no expense to develop solutions. Taking oil and making it cool again. Reversing the process of inverter development and embracing the idea of being an engine and not a cog. We believe the future is unified, fortified, and electrified. We're for real and we're ready. While everyone else is busy making parts and pieces, we're charging toward the electrified future. Because at AAM, we're taking the world by electrical storm. To learn more about our 3-in-1 eDrive system or any of our other market-ready, scalable driveline technologies, visit aam.com future. Now back to our interview with Regina Pulo from Populous. So let's um, kind of dwell in on the idea that collectively this data can benefit the greater good. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about your safety project with the uh, Department of Transportation. Sure, I think that's a really good example of how MDS and uh, data uh, that's now being made available by mobility operators to cities can have huge benefits. Um, so with the US Department of Transportation, Populous has um, a grant as part of the Big Data Safety Initiative um, to improve and accelerate safety improvements um, in cities. We are currently working with a cohort of 20 cities that um, we are ingesting GPS trace data from micromobility vehicles in order to show aggregation of, of routes, so where are trips um, primarily occurring um, in their municipalities, but we're also layering on other data sets. Um, so for example, crash data um, that cities have access to and have collected for bike and pedestrian or other vulnerable road users, um, help cities identify where are potentially dangerous intersections that they need to make improvements to. Um, and then also many of the cities that we work with have um, bike master plans um, or vision zero plans that they are um, using as their roadmap for um, updating infrastructure. Um, and so our USDOT initiative is really focused on helping bring together those data sets and visualize them um, and analyze them in ways that can accelerate those choices um, that cities are making to, to make streets safer for everyone. Can you um, share with us any specific instances in which you've used predictive analysis um, to um, help save lives in these cities that you're working with? Well, one of the key I think, areas um, is really related to what we're doing for the USDOT Safety Initiative, which is helping cities make decisions around protected cycleways um, and infrastructure for micromobility. Um, so when you look at, for instance, all the trips that are occurring for scooters in many U.S. cities, um, the volume is, is really quite significant, um, and most cities previous ability to collect data on bike and ped um, activity was fairly limited. Um, so prior to micromobility data being shared with cities, a lot of cities had either no data or they had limited data for specific corridors where they literally had humans on the street counting bikes or pedestrians on particular corridors. Um, and so I think the insights that cities now have about where demand is um, for people who are on smaller vehicles um, helps them make those infrastructure decisions. And it's hard to know, you know, did you save a life because a crash didn't occur? That could have occurred without that infrastructure being there. 
but I, but I like to think that we are seeing cities make those decisions more quickly and creating the infrastructure that makes it possible for people to get around without a car more easily. I do feel like in transportation in general, that, that idea of, um, you know, counting the deaths that you saved, the ones that did not happen or, or even near misses, uh, which is something that is kind of like, you know, happening in pilot projects, but, but that is such a hard thing to quantify is the, you know, the bad things that did not happen. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that what we are definitely collecting from a quantitative perspective in terms of measuring change um, is cities collect crash data and they collect, um, you know, incidents of, of death in cities from transportation related uh, injury. Um, and so most cities are tracking those over time. And that's where the Vision Zero initiative comes from is getting those deaths down to zero. Um, and so we are quantifying um, crashes and injuries on our on our platform. Um, and I, I hope that we'll see change more quickly um, as a result of cities having more access to data to, to make streets safer. Whether it's in safety or, or beyond, kind of just back to managing curd space, uh, this is a big picture question. Take it whichever way you want. But, but now that cities do have all this data and, and intelligence, what does a city look like in 2035, 2040? Well, one of the key things that we currently see today um, where we are focusing a lot of our activity uh, at Populous is that there are a lot of different modes competing for scarce space. And most cities don't have very good information about where, for instance, um, UPS and Amazon and FedEx trucks are making huge amounts of deliveries, um, as well as where um, bikes and pedestrians and micromobility vehicles are. So our hope is by that stage, cities should have pretty good insights about where these vehicles are primarily um, creating demand so they can better manage um, separating them um, if you don't want to see conflicts between, you know, a large truck and someone on a scooter. Staying with that idea of the city of the future, I can't help but wonder how micromobility will fit into that picture Will we still be seeing scooters? Will we still be seeing e-bikes? More of them, fewer of them? What do you see in the future? I've always thought that scooters felt like a gateway drug to e-bikes. Um, e-bikes have very good range and utility, um, but there was something about scooters that made them more attractive to, I think, a wider segment of users. And so you saw this huge demand um, for scooters overnight, whereas you may not have seen that demand for e-bikes. Um, strange, but that's just how things <laughs> play out. Um, I think that we will see micromobility play, uh, continue to play a big role in cities. There are a lot of trips that you can make that are less than three miles that most people make in a car that could easily be shifted into smaller, um, more space and carbon efficient modes. Regina, I'm curious. So, you know that that word micromobility seems like such an umbrella term. I'm curious, how do you define micromobility? I define micromobility as um, applying to vehicles that are typically two, but maybe three wheels, but that can probably fit in a bike lane. Okay, that's a good uh, good succinct definition. Um, let me back up a second. I know that uh, you received a PhD in transportation and energy systems from MIT. 
Uh, you've been a research scientist at Stanford, uh, UC Davis, UC Berkeley. Uh, I hope I'm not forgetting any in there. Uh, how, how did you get interested in transportation in the first place? I actually fell into transportation uh, via my interest in the environment. And um, so I had started a nonprofit uh, called Engineers for a Sustainable World um, out of undergrad and then um, decided that I wanted to continue my journey um, and focus my career in climate change. And so I decided to apply to this program at MIT, which was focused on systems engineering. Um, and a big portion of that program, at least a third of the people in it, um, were building systems models to predict the future of climate change and the different key factors that contribute to it. Uh, and analyze policy levers that could accelerate uh, emissions reductions. Um, and so when I arrived at MIT, I had the opportunity to decide what to focus my thesis on and decided transportation is really a tough nut to crack and I wanted to spend my time there. <laughs> I'm curious in that sense, uh, you know, with climate change being, you know, a daily topic of conversation now, uh, do you see a, this kind of switch to electrification that we're seeing now throughout the auto industry in particular? Uh, is, that, is that the magic bullet or, or do other things need to happen here to really reduce transportation's contribution to, to carbon emissions? There are a lot of different factors that contribute to the climate impacts of, of transportation. Um, there is a good metric um, or framework to think about it, which is the ASIF methodology. Uh, and what it includes is you have to consider what are the uh, power sources of the vehicle that's being used. Um, but also what's really important is uh, what are the modes that are being used for transport. So I think that electrification is definitely, uh, you know, a key lever that moves us in the right direction. But at the end of the day, we also need people to switch into lower carbon modes. If we can get more people biking, taking transit um, and walking uh, for more of their trips uh, and also reducing the total number of trips that people take, those are the three most important levers that get us towards um, lower carbon footprint for transport. What about cargo e-bikes? I've, I've seen some stories mentioning how this is a, a, a rising use case for biking. So can you uh, fill us in on, on how that's going and where you expect that to go? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we are seeing a lot of cities think about goods delivery in um, you know a couple of different ways. One is how can they create more commercial curb loading zones to make more space for big vehicles when big vehicles are needed? But they are also creating new programs and pilots to determine how to get more of those deliveries occurring on e-cargo uh, bikes. Um, and, and so that is definitely a big initiative in a number of big U.S. cities. Um, and I think in Europe, they've been doing, doing that for a while. So, you know, going back to, to one of your previous questions, I think um, a lot of European cities have already been exploring this um, and uh, definitely a, a, an important topic because the volume of goods that we have delivered continues to increase. So you've done your share of research into shared mobility and a uh, bit of a hot button issue here, but has the advent of ride hailing services like Uber and Lyft, has it helped alleviate congestion or contribute to congestion? Um, so I did do a study um, when I was a research scientist um, at UC Davis on this very topic. 
And what I found is that more people were switching from public transit to ride hailing vehicles for trips um, than from individual vehicles to ride hailing uh, vehicles. Thus, the total net impact on congestion and emissions uh, is higher. Um, there are short-term effects as well as long-term effects. And so I think what most ride-hailing companies uh, would argue is that by having ride-hailing services available, um, more people might choose to not own a car and thus overall over their, say, 10 years of travel, make fewer trips in a car. Um, I think there's still a lot of research to be done, but um, I think there are arguments to be made for both, but to the extent that more people are taking solo trips in an Uber that could have been done on a bike or in transit, that's a net increase in emissions. Regina, there's always seemed to have been a, you know, a balance or question as to whether public transit and ride hailing are complementary or competitive. And perhaps as you just alluded to, it's a little bit of both. I'm curious, has that dynamic changed at all during the pandemic when we've seen people really, um, you know, commuters shy away from public transit uh, for, for a lot of reasons? Yeah, I, I think that we've seen public transit has obviously declined um, over the last two years because of the pandemic. Um, I one of the things that I think we'll see continue to see happen are shifts from public transit to modes that people feel more comfortable on, including, for example, micro mobility vehicles. I do think that ride hailing services actually have some of some similar challenges as public transit when it comes to people's concerns around public safety and health. You are still sharing a vehicle with another person that you don't know um, and don't know their exposure when, as it comes to, to COVID. Um, that being said, um, we are seeing a lot of public transit agencies start to rethink what is the basket of solutions that they offer and maybe is on-demand transit um, something they might subsidize or purchase in addition to building out fixed line transit uh, services. And I think that will continue to evolve. At the end of the day, though, what I would say is that in order for public transit to really be effective and for people to have the option to walk, bike, and take transit, um, a lot of transportation's problems are actually rooted in housing density. <laughs> so if we build giant sprawling cities, it is very difficult for public transit to thrive. Um, and so land use and housing are long-term challenges that don't change overnight, but I, I continue to think that it's a really important policy arena in order to curb transportation emissions. Regina, I have one final question for you, and um, I think this hopefully will be kind of fun for you. We talked a lot earlier about the city of the future. If there was one thing that you could change about the transportation landscape today, what would be your highest priority? What would you do? And what would get us to the ideal city of the future? I think that the most important thing cities need to do in order to make transportation more efficient and cleaner is to price transportation appropriately. So we currently give roads away for free, we give curb space away for free, we give a lot of parking away for free. Um, and most people accept that we pay for electricity, we pay for water, 
Um, but somehow transportation, people expect to be free. So that's the number one thing I would change is for the world to recognize that that infrastructure isn't free and we need to charge the right price for it in order to get the outcomes we want. That's a really interesting answer. And I'm curious, uh, do you think, is it politically palatable or possible to, to make that a reality? And I know we do see some uh, experiments in, in, you know, dynamic pricing, as you might call it. Uh, how have those fared and, you know, how do you actually make this happen without uh, people who are accustomed to something for free really rebelling? I actually think this is one of Uber's greatest contributions to transportation is getting people accustomed to the idea that you pay on a per minute or a per mile basis. Uh, and the concept of surge pricing when there is more demand, um, that I think alone um, has probably made a lot more people in the world recognize that paying for your usage of transportation um, is, is a sensible, logical way to organize uh, our transportation and pricing. Regina, it's been so great having you on the podcast today, uh, hearing about populace and, and your views about the broader tra transportation landscape. So, so thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Regina for that great conversation. Leslie, I, I'm glad that I have a firmer definition of, of exactly what micromobility is. I, you know, I, I kind of knew we're talking e-bikes and scooters, but, uh, but she really pinpointed that, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yes, it was. And one thing that I'm looking forward to with the uh, pandemic hopefully easing up is getting a chance to use some of these micromobility options. I haven't had a chance to. I still haven't rented one of the bikes or scooters. And I think it's about time that I gave them a try. Whole new world out there. Um, speaking of which, we have a couple terrific guests on the schedule in the uh, upcoming weeks, Leslie. I, I won't belabor the point with, uh, with the details right now, but um, stay tuned for more on the Shift Podcast. And uh, that is it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.